This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Almost 1 billion people in Asia don't have access to electricity. Meanwhile, energy demand in the region is expected to double by 2030. So perhaps it's no surprise that Asia is one of the most forward-thinking regions when it comes to renewable energy technology. My guest today, Ankur Sahu, is the co-head of our merchant bank in Asia-Pacific, which means he invests the firm's own capital as well as that of our clients in companies, similar to the work that private equity firms do. Ankur's here to talk about how renewables are increasingly a major emphasis of his team's portfolio. Ankur, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into renewables and the story of renewables in Asia, Ankur, I think it'd be useful for our audience to hear a little bit about how the firm thinks about its merchant bank more broadly. How do you identify high-quality investments? And once you've made those investments, what's Goldman Sachs' relationship like with those companies? Sure. Goldman Sachs, being a preeminent merchant bank globally, has relationships with institutions, corporate clients, as well as entrepreneurs and other individuals, management or other wealth management clients. It's those relationships and providing solutions to that community where sometimes there's need for risk capital that the firm is willing to deploy and work alongside these institutions and individuals. And that's really the key role of Merchant Bank. So we sit between these investors and oftentimes between the entrepreneurs and play an intermediary role. Yes, and a lot of times the solutions that the public markets may offer may not be sufficient for the needs of the client, and that's where historically we've been there with our risk capital, providing an investment opportunity to our institutional clients at the same time for the firm's balance sheet. And are institutional investors looking at the renewable space and the environmental space a little differently these days? Yes, I think there's been a shift where originally this was more of a development, higher risk with unstable policy regimes and high reliance on subsidies. It was more private equity, longer-term capital. But what's happened in the last sort of decade, this has shifted to more of a standardized, high-growth market, and that's attracted a lot of traditional large institutional investors as well as yield players. Why has renewable energy emerged as an area of focus for you and your team? Well, I think stepping back, historically for the firm, energy has been an area of great sort of history in terms of investing and success, and whether it's upstream all the way to downstream. And within that, I think even going back 10 plus years, we had done stuff in the U.S. on the renewable side in Europe. And taking some of those learnings, the demand in Asia is so strong. And with the pollution and climate impact, I think renewables were soon emerging to be a very good solution. The common perception was that it's a trade-off. You can have clean energy or economic growth. But ultimately, I think if you look at various factors, it's not just for the good of the environment. There's a lot of other reasons why today it actually is better to do renewables to facilitate growth as opposed to a trade-off. Initially, it was all subsidy-driven, but today it's a very much a competitive solution to the needs. And what we saw was The economies in Asia were one of the few economies that had a supply-demand mismatch, and that's where renewables could play the plug. And it's played out in that manner, but that was the original thesis. I think there's motivations for governments beyond just doing good for the environment. So going a little bit deeper on India, Prime Minister Modi has articulated a very ambitious target of 175 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2022, just five years from now. So it's currently at about 46 gigawatts. 
How does India plan on reaching that goal? That's a good question. It does look ambitious when you just look at where we are and where we need to get to. But if you sort of break it down, what that means is wind capacity needs to grow 20% a year and solar needs to grow four folds. And rooftop has the most amount to grow from where it is today. Now, 20% growth for wind is not that aggressive a target given where things have been historically. And for solar, if you just look at the last three years, the amount of growth that has happened and the pricing that has come down because of panel pricing, financing structures. Today, solar in India is at parity or even better and more competitive than thermal. Once uh, fully installed? Yes. Or even, yes. yeah. Okay. And frankly, solar power today is the lowest cost across most of the world. So to me, with that kind of a cost dynamic, the government now is actually very excited because they're achieving their goals of electrification across 100% of India without providing subsidies. And the whole shift has moved from feed-in tariff to competitive bidding now, and people are bidding very aggressively. I think the pendulum has swung too far where there needs to be more rationality of economics such that investors will keep investing. But certainly from a growth perspective, renewable, I feel, will get to where it is. And in fact, there's talk that by 2030, 40% of India's generation would be renewables. China, we talked about briefly, is in a unique position of being the world's largest clean energy producer, which a lot of people don't know, but it's also the largest producer of greenhouse gases, which probably just means that it's big more than anything else. With the withdrawal of the U.S. from the Paris Agreement, China's also taken on a bit of a global leadership role when it comes to renewables. How might that manifest itself going forward, and what opportunities does that afford for investors? I would go back to when the Paris Accords happened and China enthusiastically signed up. I think the driving factor there was not so much saving the climate and the environment, but rather I think China sees an opportunity to A, solve the pollution issues, which is primarily driven through coal and thermal generation. Secondly, what they saw was the whole world signing up to renewables and them seeing a tremendous new export opportunity. China is also the biggest manufacturing juggernaut in terms of PV cells or wind turbines. And to them, this was a job creation opportunity in a new sector that wasn't there and the whole world signing up to it. So there was an economic benefit there. And then lastly, I think energy security, not relying on importing fuel and again, putting pressure on the currency and balance of payments. So all those factors combined, I think China's been very savvy about signing up and being enthusiastic. Now, with the U.S. pulling out, they are obviously continuing because of the reasons I mentioned, but ultimately, if the whole world starts to renege or not enthusiastically support the Paris agreements, then the whole uh, manufacturing market and opportunity becomes less. So in some senses, I think the other compelling reasons for China may diminish also. Having said that, I think the trains left the station and China has a goal of reaching 20% renewables by 2030, and the expectation is they will overshoot that significantly and continue to be the leader in manufacturing. Are there opportunities for foreign investors there? Traditionally, it's been a tough market sometimes for foreign investors working through a JV, but there are obviously some investors that have done quite well in China in certain sectors. What does this sector look like? Yeah, I think, you know, historically, even the firm has participated across the value chain from polysilicon to PV cell components to cells to wind turbine components to energy generation and then distribution and, and maintenance. 
I think the key in China is timing because if the market gets matured, then there's enough local financing support, local investor support, and then it's harder for outsiders to come in. But if it's higher risk areas that are not proven and that need higher risk appetite, then those places still remain very open. But today, going into PV manufacturing or wind turbine manufacturing, I think that industry, China's already become the leader. They don't need capital from the rest of the world. Challenges remain where there's a mismatch between where the demand is on the east side versus where a lot of the generation might be in the interiors, and there's not the grid connectivity and transmission lines to get power from where it's being generated to where it's needed. And there's a lot of investments going into that area, but still there's tremendous power curtailment, almost 5 to some cases 25% of power generated is wasted. So that's an area that the government's focused on. How might the renewable story fit into some of the ambitious infrastructure projects and other growth initiatives the Chinese government's pursuing? The whole strategy of China finding new growth opportunities for its industry is that by building infrastructure, by creating demand, they actually can sell more Chinese technology, products, goods to the countries that need it. Not unlike what happened after World War II and the U.S. invested in Europe, right? Absolutely. Built a, built Absolutely. a strong market Absolutely. for its own goods. And I do think renewable will be a big part, but I think given sort of early stage of development for a lot of the whole uh, region that they're looking at, I think thermal will also play a big part and hydro and others. But clearly now, given the capacity they have, and in fact, at some points over capacity, renewable will continue to play a big role. So you're based in Tokyo. Yes. And Japan's a pretty interesting case when it comes to renewables. It's obviously a much more mature economy than China or India in, in a lot of different respects. And since Fukushima, it's been moving away from nuclear power, which it was a leader on in some ways. What challenges and opportunities does Japan present for the investor? You know, after the earthquake, it again became a supply-demand imbalanced economy where there was more demand than supply because all the nuclear reactors shut down. And nuclear was a big part of Japanese production capacity. Even today, only 3 gigawatts out of 54 are operational. And while there's talk about getting more up and running, I think the local opposition and the citizen opposition is very strong. So I'm not sure how much of that will come online. They've been meeting that gap with importing gas and LNG and I think that leads to more... That's not a great long-term strategy. ...fiscal right? pressure. So, again, Japan has ambitious targets on their renewables getting to 22% by 2030 versus, you know, 4 or 5% today. We think, and I think the expectation is that they will overshoot that, particularly on the solar and rooftop solar side. Also, they're finding that the cost of capital has come down, where initially they had to provide heavy subsidies. Japan subsidies were some of the highest, but they've been reducing that in line with the reduction in equipment pricing. And today, I think there's a lot of investor demand, yield-oriented investor demand, who would fund these projects at 3 4% yield, and that creates an environment of further growth. So I think Japan's a great environment. I think the cost of capital probably doesn't make sense for a lot of foreign investors to come in now. But there are innovations on the technology side. I think battery technology is, quote-unquote, holy grail, where if that's solved, then that actually makes renewables even more attractive. This is the storage issue. Uh, the storage, yeah. yeah. For both residential as well as for utility. And a lot of Japanese companies are focused on that. And so I do think there'll be innovations on that side for Japan alongside batteries for EVs and other things. From a global emissions standpoint, the countries we've talked about are the most impactful, but the region is also 
home to some of the smaller, very dynamic economies, particularly in Southeast Asia. What countries and sectors stand out to you there in this space? So again, you know, I would say Southeast Asia as a group has made progress. However, when you compare that to like the investment in solar last year in Southeast Asia was one billion versus close to twenty billion in China and ten billion in India. So that's the magnitude of the growth in China and India versus Southeast Asia. There's still policy issues, there's bankability issues on whether power purchase agreement PPA has, you know, enough standing for global capital to get there. And what it is is an agreement with normally a utility or a government entity where they agree to buy power at a certain price for a long period of time. Sometimes it can be 25 years or 20 years, but they're long term so that against that you can raise financing and with equity you can actually make a decent return. And if, for whatever reason, the promised amounts are not delivered when you deliver the energy, then the whole capital structure breaks down. I think there needs to be a lot of work done both on policy and economics and financing structures to enable the growth in those economies. So throughout all the countries we've talked about, there are very different approaches, as you've referenced, taken by the governments in terms of incentives and mandates. What models work best, in your view, you know, with this global view you have and the ability to look at different markets? How important do you think are incentives in facilitating the transition to a low-carbon economy, particularly in some of the emerging countries we talked about? So I think the key word is facilitating. I think it's very important to facilitate the transition because otherwise it's hard to get people to come in. So initially the government maybe has to step up. And I'll take India as an example of a place where from a very small base it's going to a very large base. And the government actually proactively came aggressive with incentives. But very quickly, they saw that there was demand for investing in the country, and now they've switched to competitive bidding. And ultimately, I feel competitive bidding without subsidies is the way to go. And what that has done is dramatically reduce almost 50% the price that the FIT regime was versus what's been bid at today. Now, I think it's gone way too aggressive because people are assuming continual 15% declines in equipment prices, which I think this year it won't be that dramatic and also innovative financing, long-term structures and FX, et cetera, hedging. So I do think it's gone way to the other side, but net-net, it's still cheaper than thermal. So in some senses, it's a great experiment of how a government can transition from a mainly thermal-based economy and energy regime to now going to be mainly renewables. What are some of the more nascent technologies that you're watching that could ultimately deliver better economic growth and help reduce emissions, or what industries might be at the risk of disruption on the other side of it? You look at the broad spectrum of what LEDs are doing in terms of penetration in the whole lighting market, and one interesting fact is that pretty soon renewables as a share of global energy production will be 10%, versus e-commerce today is 8% of retail. So That gives you a perspective on how much the penetration is going deep into these markets. Clearly, there's a lot of talk about uh, EV and with battery pricing coming down, that market is expected to continue to explode. And you've seen uh, innovators there in Tesla and others who've done really well. And now everyone's sort of trying to find their own solutions there. We talked about the storage. And today, the power produced by renewables is not uniform So when it's sun, it produces. When it's dark, it doesn't. 
Now, if you could store and use when it's not sort of producing, then that's a pretty disruptive change. And a lot of innovation, I expect, to come in those types of technologies. And then there's offshore wind. There's some technologies that innovative Silicon Valley companies are doing, for example, generating energy through kites that fly in the sky. And there's all sorts of innovative things that people are trying to do to see how they can harness natural energy. So with any growth sector in any industry, there are always going to be impediments to growth. And sometimes it's talent, sometimes it's raw materials, sometimes it's just a sheer technological issue. What are some of the biggest constraints on renewable growth in Asia? Ultimately, the growth, I think, is here to stay. There needs to be enough returns for investors to continue to invest and continue that growth. And so there needs to be a balance between reducing price for power versus making sure there's enough economic return. Also, policy shifts. You've seen what happened in the U.S. went from signing one of the greatest accords to pulling out of it in a matter of few years. Yeah, investors don't like uncertainty, so, radical so I think shifts in stability, policy. things like if people start changing the agreements for purchase, like the PPA we talked about, if a government change comes in and says, I'm not going to honor that, I think that's a disaster for investors. So having stability in policy, continual technology innovation leading to reduced pricing. So the history of the 20th century particularly in the industrialized world, was one of very carbon-intensive economic growth. Is it reasonable to say that for the emerging economies of the 21st century, the economic growth can really rest on low-carbon technology? And what has to happen from both a policy and a technological standpoint to make that more of a reality? Yeah, I absolutely believe that low-carbon technology will be the defining feature for this century. And you're already seeing that in LEDs, in renewable power, in EVs, storage, batteries. So all of this, even a decade ago, was not to the level where it is. And today, I think the penetrations of these traditional industries very high, and there's a lot of new sort of entrants and disruptors. So I feel the shift has already started and it's here to stay. Um, it's actually not just good for the environment, but makes better economic sense. Well, Agar, on that hopeful note, we'll wrap up the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jake. It's always a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on August 1st, 2017. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast.
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.